Today we are joined by Colin D. Ellis. Colin helps organisations around the world to create the cultures they need to be continually successful. He is an international speaker and author of the bestseller Culture Fix. I read the book Culture Fix during late 2019 and I was left wanting to interview the author well before we even launched our first podcast episode. You can learn more about Colin's work at www.colindellis.com. Just before we commence the discussion, Kate and myself would like to genuinely thank our growing global audience for your support. If you'd like to leave a review about education transformation on your chosen podcast platform, we would certainly value your feedback. So Colin, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. I know it's going to be fun. I've seen you online in some of your presentations and I've certainly read your book and, and your, your book, Culture Fixes, is most interesting and written in a very fun, interactive way because a lot of it is about uh, what you've experienced as, as an individual in senior management. So thanks so much for being a part of this podcast today. Thank you, Lee. It's great to be here. So reflecting back upon your journey with regards to your career, was there one person or one significant event that led you into an interest of workplace culture? I don't think there is one event, Lee. I think, you know, often when people are being interviewed, they're pressured into what was the one thing, what was yeah, the sure. thing that... You... And I don't, I don't really don't think there was. I, I you know, I, I, I guess like most people, you know, I had a 30-year permanent uh, employment career and you know I had people that drifted in and out of that probably I had I probably worked for six leaders over that time which isn't that many really one every five years and there yeah. were there were some people that really left a kind of indelible mark on on me uh, I think more than anything else Lee it was a sense of frustration that the teams that I led and the teams that I was part of, we managed to do things that other people didn't weren't able to do, and I couldn't I couldn't understand that. You know, I remember my last permanent job was in Melbourne in in 2014, and I, I never wanted to work for myself, and 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 yet we were doing stuff, and I was going to I was going to networking events to try and get to meet people. We'd only been in Australia for six months, and I was really trying to kind of build a bit of a network. And they were talking about things that were like, oh, you know, uh, how, how, do, how do you go about changing a culture? I'm like, well, it's really easy. What you've got to do is start by redefining it. And stuff I was talking about, they were like, but, but, but where did you learn all this? I'm like, well, experience. And then you've factored that into a team building process. Who do you use? I'm like, well, I don't use anyone. I've just kind of built this knowledge. So I don't think there was one thing, Lee, but, but it was a collection of you know, kind of thing, I guess, practices that I'd built up over over that 30 years? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly reading your book, um, that, that, that seems to uh, be the case. Um, there's some wonderful events and, and accounts of, of your personal journey, um, which has been really interesting. So later on, of course, we'll promote that book, but I would encourage anyone that um, hasn't read your book, Culture Fix, to grab a copy because it's really worthwhile and certainly... Um, quite relevant to to many workplaces today so just tell us a little bit about some of the adult education workplace institutions that you've worked with 
Well, education's an interesting one, um, Lee, because largely it's kind of academic. So it very, you know, very, they very much focus on, uh, I guess, more of those technical skills when really culture is about uh, the emotional connection and a sense of well-being. So they don't generally go there as a as a priority. And yet, there are some some leaders that I do know now in education that do. So I say I would work. I've worked with three uh, university faculties, and I've lectured at, at, at many others on on culture and the importance of it. And I think you know, whenever I whenever I start talking, particularly to the kind of senior faculty members, there's a curiosity which I think is great with regards to culture. And 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 usually, and you would know this, it's built on. Uh, student feedback or staff feedback and that they feel a need to address it which is I guess not much different to most corporates um but but not really knowing where to start is is what you get as lots of emotional feedback and uh, particularly the universities that I've worked with they're like but, but but where do we go with this how do we how do we change things and then what they start doing is kind of making excuses for the fact that well we're very technical people that's the way we think we're introverted we're not about to start putting ourselves out there and so almost making excuses for not doing the work before they've even started doing the work so... yes 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 well, some of that's common ground yes I can relate <laughs> And so then I have to start kind of unpick. Then I then I have to then overdo the well, you know. Great cultures are a mix of technical and emotional, and it's great that you've got the technical stuff, yeah. um, you know, before kind of leading into well, listen, what keeps people grounded in a culture? What what creates that sense of happiness? Is is of course a sense of progression, of course a sense of unlearning and relearning, of course a sense of curriculum, and this is the right way to do things. But also, happiness isn't that alone. Happiness and belonging require me to have an emotional connection to my job, an emotional connection to the people around me. That requires conversation, that requires vulnerability, that requires curiosity. And so if you're not prepared to open yourself up to these feelings, to openly discuss them and build a foundation on which everything else can be built, then stop pretending that you're interested in culture. Um, because, you know, fundamentally to, to, to create a great place to work or a great place to be, it requires a mix of emotional and, and, and technical approaches and, and, you know, kind of cultures err on the side of one or the other. You know, I was working with a marketing team, all emotional, didn't want any structure at all. I'm like, hey, you got to have a bit of structure. <laughs> you know? What do you mean structure? We've got targets. Yeah, not targets. You know, there's got to be a process. You, process? We don't do process. Yeah, that's why your culture's not great. So it, it, it does need a mix of things. Yeah, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I don't think I'd survive within within a marketing uh, context, but at the same time, <laughs> um, there are some some frustrations within the education world as well. Um, so it's 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 you've got to get that good balance. That's a good point. Hmm. Um, can the size of an organisation uh, influence the the health of the culture? Yeah. It- it can, Lee, and I think this is one of the most misunderstood elements of workplace culture. And something that I experienced many times in my career were what would happen would be the leadership, whoever they may be, would try and dictate the culture of the organization. So they would go on some form of offsite, they would bring in consultants, they would bring in design agents or whatever it might be 
who would create this neat little thing that you could package up often with a new logo. And then they'd send it out and say, oh, here's your new values. Uh, Here's your new vision. Which is, well, it's definitely not the right way to do things. There's there's no way to build engagement when you do it that way. Because what you're doing is you're dictating the culture and what you want is that kind of ground up approach. But, but, it, let's let's say that were to happen um, for larger uh, for larger establishments. Then really, then it's about uh, each manager, each level, whatever the organisation might be, taking ownership of it. Because great organisation cultures are made up of the subcultures. Okay, so this is the bit that's understood, right? Is you can't have just one culture. Your organisation is a mix of different cultures, um, and and so it's crucially important that people understand. Well, if that's what if that's what our values are and that's what our vision is, how does it apply to me in let's say a science faculty? Now, even in, even in something like a science faculty, you you might have things like oh, I don't know environment, uh, life science, uh, psychology, physical science, right? So there's there's kind of four subcultures of the science faculty straight away it's up to the leader of each of those particular areas to say okay well how does that apply to me what kind of culture do we need to create for us because what you might need in the environment kind of uh, area is quite different from the the life science area or there may be some connection the values and the vision keep everybody connected they keep all of the subcultures connected so the vision that the organization has and the values that they have they keep everything connected but for everybody else, it's up to each individual manager to define, well, what do we need to create in order to make sure that we're conforming to the values and delivering against the vision? And so this is where you get those little pockets of great and awesome every now and again, which I'm sure we'll talk more talk more about. Um, and, and you get these little pockets of broken as well. So I think, you know, regardless of the, you know, because I work... I, I typically work with with small teams within a larger team. So, for example, with, with one university, I just worked with one faculty, right, with one particular area who said, okay, well, we want to create the best culture and we want to show everybody else how to do it because they couldn't get commitment from the organization to do the whole mm-hmm. thing. Yep. And then typically I would help them create something and help them to do it themselves, and then it would spread. And I was like, oh, we've seen what you've done. Can, can, can we do it? Oh, yes. we've seen what you've done with those. Can we do it? Because then people get that real sense of acknowledgement that actually, yes, you can define it. Um, and yes, it's more than a one-day workshop, mm-hmm. you know, with the senior management team. It so. really requires lots of input. Yep, 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 yep. Very interesting. Yeah, it sounds quite healthy. Mm. Within your book, Culture Fix, you make the statement, culture is something that gets people out of bed in the morning and often it's the last thing they think of before they go to bed at night. If culture is that important, then what makes a vibrant culture as opposed to a stagnant culture? Uh, yeah, and that, that statement is based on personal experience, Lee. I know that yep. you know when I've been kind of most stressed in my job it's been the the particular elements of the culture you know and for me there are there are six pillars of workplace culture there's personality and communication so it's kind of self-aware individuals who know how to speak to each other you've got that vision that aspirational statement of the future you've got values which provide emotional connection then you have behaviors collaboration innovation what what kept me awake at night was either the behavior of individuals 
the way that we weren't working together, the fact that we weren't making time for new ideas, the fact that I had a communication breakdown with somebody, we had no aspirational statement or strategy. And they were the things that kept me up at night. And I think in stagnant cultures, and we, we, we nicknamed them toxic cultures, what you get is people who are quite self-centered. They have low emotional intelligence. They don't, they're not really invested in the job or the organization or the team. They don't want to be a team player. Um, there's really no sense of collaboration between the different areas. You've got this patch protection, whereas within vibrant cultures, you've got that collective aspiration. You've got an agreement on behaviors. You don't tolerate brilliant jerks. People who are technically very good, but undermine the culture through their <laughs> behaviors. Um, yes. You've got you've got the willingness to work together. You've got celebrating success. You've got the learning from the failure. And, you know, crucially, you've got management of poor performance is when people don't perform. There's lots of empathy to help people to get to where they need to be. But vibrant cultures don't carry passengers. Yes. And, and, and I think, you know, uh, when you create something like, but, you know, and the thing about vibrant cultures, um, Lee, is that if you don't take t- the time to define what vibrancy is, you only ever get there accidentally. And then when you're there and everyone's happy and motivated and you're hitting your targets and your results and you're getting great feedback, you want to bottle it. Um, yes. And it's kind of backwards approach. Actually, if you defined it up front, you would get the 80% of the time, never 100% of the time, because no culture can stay vibrant all of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you would mm-hmm. be able to, to stay there you know, at least 80% of the time and, and, and always have that feeling. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful, a wonderful workplace when the culture is is really strong and uh, embracing of innovation and, and supportive. You make the statement on your website where you know are your values laminated or are they lived? <laughs> um, and I paraphrase that a little bit, but that that captured my attention and it got me thinking about. Um, I've worked for a number of government departments over the years, and now. Government, if you look up the code of conduct, it will often state along the lines of, you know, many departments, but one one organisation, something along those lines. However, some of those workplace or most of those workplace cultures have been absolutely fantastic, you know, very encouraging places to work. And, you know, contrary to what uh, a lot of people will think, um, it is a positive environment. However, I have worked in one culture where it was quite challenging with these subcultures, what, how is that possible when when they might be governed by standards and codes of conduct um, that, are, that are overarching over the top? And perhaps it relates back to an earlier question or an earlier response that you gave. How do we address those sorts of issues, those imbalances? Uh, a question I used to get asked all of the time because I used to, me and my teams used to create these kind of cultures and people were like, how have you done that? We've all, the code of conduct is something that HR love to pump out. Um, but, but, but ultimately what it doesn't do is accurate, accurately describe how you create that sense of belonging and connection. So the reason that you get one really great subculture and one that isn't so great it's firstly down to skill set of actually building culture, Lee. Uh, but secondly, it's because managers and employees don't uphold those standards that are actually laid out in those codes of conduct. Now, it's very easy for employees to point at a senior manager and go, they're a bully, they do this, they do that. And of course, that's that's the case. You know, I, 
you know, somebody tried to bully me in a government job once, uh, tried to, um, but I know the right way to do things. I'm not accepting that and I'm going to report them to HR and I'm going to make sure that they follow through on the process. That's because if I don't demonstrate that I'm prepared to uphold those standards, mm-hmm. I can't expect it of anybody else. Yep. And so I think, you know, when when managers and, and employees both commit to upholding what's in place and then take that information and say, well, how do we create something where we can perform a, a, a you know, kind of to the best of our abilities every day. That's when you get results. Too often, like I said, we, we pump out policies, we create something at the top level, we bring in branding agents or consultants, and then we just expect magic to happen. Lee, and that's just not the way that culture works. Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to the executive and the, and the leadership and also commitment of the staff collectively. It's it's yep. both of it's both of those things, yes. and what I would say then, Lee, is that kind of the role that executives play then in in maintaining the vibrant culture is crucially important. And I'm always keen to point out to senior leaders and executives that they don't own the culture. So culture is the sum of everybody's attitudes, bela- uh, beliefs, behaviors, traditions, and skills. Everybody's. Mm-hmm. All right, so they don't own it. And yet, through their actions or inactions, they have the power to destroy it, this kind of dichotomy of culture. So they have to role model what they expect of everybody else. It's that, that that's the important role that they need to play, is they have to role model. You know, I, I, I often say at the end of my workshops, whether it be in person or virtual, I always have a kind of meeting with the senior leaders say it's now up to you to demonstrate everything that we've talked about because the second that you don't do it you give everybody else an excuse not to do it yep Yep. So you've that's got to so uphold those standards. So it, it is so important, but that's yeah. their job. But they don't yes. see it as that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, that's true. But it's uh, it has major ramifications if it's not daily managed correctly and appropriately. Well, that's right. It only needs one day where they decide yes. to shout and ball somebody out of the office, you know. And you know, I said to one senior manager who was having issues, let's put it that way. Uh, I said, you have to be the the bigger, better person in the room. You have to be the adult here and you have to show everyone else how it's done. Oh, do I have to? I was like, well, you don't have to, but you won't stay in this job very long if you don't. Yeah, yeah. Can be challenging, but uh, but the cost is worth it. Yeah. That's right. Now, in, uh, in my current role, I work with a number of large training organisations and I develop strategic plans for, for their long-term progress into the future for their faculty. In that process, I'll, I'll seek feedback from uh, stakeholders such as uh, the executive staff and the faculty and students and industry and alike. When you collate that information and you produce a report, some organisations will be resistant to releasing transparently the feedback with regards to what they're doing great and perhaps some areas that they could improve upon. To me, that secrecy is is uh, not necessarily beneficial to workplace culture and the culture of the training organisation in general with regards to the, the student body and alike. What are your thoughts on 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 how uh, or, or or the the appropriateness? of having such secrecy yeah something i've experienced myself and and unfortunately something i've been involved in too as a senior you know as a senior executive in government for for the best part of eight years and you know we can't tell staff this can't tell employees this and uh i don't think secrecy is appropriate at all uh because it undermines trust 
Um, it was Ed Catmull said in his book, Creativity, and he said, when you resort to secrecy, you're telling people you can't be trusted. They can't be trusted. And it's absolutely true. Um, now, I get that there's sensitive information, right? And, uh, you know, as a, as a former leader, there are things that... There, there are things that evolve. And so you can't go out there and say, listen, we're going to have to make 50 people redundant when you don't know that that's the case. And mm-hmm. so yes. I remember one organization where, we, where we, we had this and we were like, oh, we can't tell anyone. We've got to keep it secret. I'm like, if you think we're going to be able to keep this secret, it's absolutely ridiculous because somebody somewhere is going to say something. I said, it's better to talk about the challenges that we face and the options that we have. And that was the first time, and that was kind of in the, kind of probably about 2008, nine, I want to say, Lee, where we had financial challenges. And I said, there's a way of being honest without being too transparent. You only want to be transparent when the facts, right? So that when the things that we know and that we can confidently communicate. For everything else, there's, there's there's really no excuse for secrecy. Also, what you're doing is you're creating this barrier of them and us. The us, we know all of the secrets. The them, you don't know any of them. Um, you know, and I want to relate back where you, you talked right at the start is you create strategy, uh, which is fabulous because, you know, you you need a good strategy and then you need to define the culture to deliver the strategy. You know, there's that famous quote, and Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for breakfast, but you need both, right? Uh-huh. So you can't yes. have a good culture without a good strategy and you can't have a good strategy without a good culture, right? Which is the point that Drucker was kind of made. Um And so what you need to do as part of your strategy is embed that sense of openness, not always transparency, that openness into your culture to make sure that people trust senior leaders and the messages they're receiving and they have no reason to doubt that they're ever being lied to. Yes, yes, very important, isn't it? The trust and and relationship underpins everything. I think it's really important that if you're asking individuals and stakeholders to provide their feedback that you are willing to in return provide an overview of what was presented in the responses so I think that just shows an element of respect for the stakeholders well absolutely plus you also you know I talk about the importance of this if you've gone to the length to collect feedback you want to acknowledge it and then talk about what you're going to do to address it. Otherwise, people are like, what a waste of time that was. Yeah. We provided yeah. a ton of feedback. They haven't acknowledged yeah. that they received it, and now they're going to do nothing with it. But people just like ticking the box. Well, we've done an engagement survey. Our engagement score is 58%. We think that's good enough. <laughs> yes. Let's carry on. Yes. No, it's yes. not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Because in particular, when you're trying to then implement change, um, you know, you need to be transparent up front. Otherwise, you, you alienate everybody uh, before you even attempt the, the change process. Absolutely right. Fantastic. Um, now, I'm going back a little bit in time. So if I cast my mind back to when I started in adult education, which is about two decades ago, when I first arrived, my managers were were academic-minded. They, they came from, you know, at the academic world. They were all about graduate outcomes, the experience in the classroom, um, enrollment growth, industry and student feedback and the like, and that was our focus. And certainly financial accountability came into it as well. But, but that, it, was a, it was a portfolio of, of, um, of goals that we were always trying to achieve. In recent times, however, in many adult education institutions, it's all about profit. And it's all about making uh, a turnover with regards to, you know, financial gains. Um, 
this cultural change seems to undervalue the academic excellence and erode any sense of empowered workplace culture willing to take innovative risks. Um, how do we address that process? Uh, by recognising that they're all connected, uh, Lee. I think there's this there's a disconnect sometimes between financial achievement and investment in culture, and it's all connected. So, you know, Gallup did a, a survey in 2017, which I talk about in the book in terms of the value of vibrant cultures. And if, if people are prepared to uphold what you've agreed, you can get you know, higher productivity, higher sales, higher profitability. You know, and in the book, I talk about kind of my own experiences of this. And the reason that I wanted to work for myself, you know, I, I, my last permanent job, I was head of project delivery for a government agency. And whilst 100% of our projects didn't come in on time to budget because the nature of projects is that that just never happens. We still had really great customer feedback. We are our projects once they were delivered still achieve the outcomes that they were set because we put the time and effort into building great culture first. Because when you've got happy people, happy people are productive people, and when they're productive, they produce results. It, it these things yep. are all linked. And so I worked with one organization uh, recently, and what they wanted to do was not only to maintain their market share, but they wanted to grow it. And, you know, I spoke to the CEO and he said, you know, uh, you know, I want culture to be my legacy. I want it to be the thing that I'm remembered for. But this is a big challenge. You know, we, we need to make sure that employees really kind of start to feel it and then deliver against it. Uh, and, and so we spent time defining it and building it. And I said, don't expect those results in the first three months. Don't expect them in the six months. But by nine months, you'll start to notice it. Mm. And market share increased by 10% after nine months. And, That's something and, that you no. do raise is is that it's a long term process, and I think many organisations fail to understand that is is that they look at it and they say, well, within two months you should have turned everything around for us, and that's not the case, is it? Yeah, no, cultures don't change; they evolve. Mm. Um, because what you're fundamentally doing is changing human behavior. Now, I don't know if you've ever changed your own behavior or a habit. It doesn't happen overnight. If you want to stop drinking, smoking, whatever it is, you want to exercise more, it takes commitment. And it takes yep. commitment over a long period of time. You know, they talk about exercise. You only start seeing the results after three months. Then by six months, you really start to see it. It's the same with workplace culture. It's a muscle you have to continually flex. Oh, my God, I'm going down the exercise analogy. <laughs> Don't want to go there. Uh, where will that lead? Back to the changing room. Um, so, but it's true. But we love our quick fixes. It's just like, how do we create more collaboration, right? Let's remove the barriers and create open plan. The one thing proven not to work, you know? It's just like, let's quickly fix something. And, you know, so cultures don't change, they evolve. And, and so the work that I do, I kind of help organizations to build that foundation. But then I always say, now you have to be consistent for three, six, nine, you know, a minimum nine months. So on average, I would say I would see change most between nine and 12 months. And that's only if people uphold the commitment to each other yes 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 i think that's that's been my experience in the academic world as well um just just now we haven't we haven't uh you know suggested we we're going to ask this question but do you want to elaborate just on your comment with regards to the open plan um office <laughs> environment yeah it's like a little a little truth bomb <laughs> that i drop every now and again <laughs> I often get questions or when, you know, when I was used to speak at conferences pre-pandemic where people come up to me, uh, can you just repeat that thing you said about <laughs> open plan? 
But it's true, right? So all of the research uh, demonstrates that when you go open plan, what it does is it, it, it doesn't encourage collaboration. What it does is it encourages people to create uh, an environment where they're comfortable working. So we're, you know, kind of, and this is linked to our, our personality preferences. Now, for me, as an extrovertly, love open plan. Give me open plan. Any hot desking, love that. I don't want to yeah. sit in the same desk every single yeah. day. I want to sit next to the same people. I want to be able to see people. I want to be able to hear people. But I'm only one personality type out of four. And so often when I, when I go into open plan environments, I see lots and lots of people with headphones on which is yes. the antithesis of great workplace culture because what you've yes. done is given you, you've created a barrier. And so, you know, what organizations need to do and what the great workplace cultures around the world do is they create multiple environments where people can do their great work. So, yes, you've got little, uh, you've got cubicles. If people want a cubicle, you've got some open plan areas for collaboration, the kitchen area for a social space. You embrace flexibility so people are set up to work from home so they've got tools that they can use when they need to be able to do that. Um, but again, it's just a, a lazy approach to culture. They think that more collaboration, one of those six pillars, one of the, more collaboration needs open plan. They think a way to change behavior needs a performance, new performance management process. They need, they think that the way to get more innovation is to create a hub where special people go and sit that's got funky okay. furniture. Yes. Yep. When really innovation lives inside all of us and it's, it's about creating the right time and space for people to actually think differently and to not kind of crap all over their ideas for want of a better word when they actually do get to share them uh, and so but we love our quick fixes when it comes to uh, workplace culture and an open plan is just one of them so it's all about balance all about balance and making sure that people every personality has a space in which they can do their best work yeah yeah i think that's really important i like that yeah in uh, your book, or I think on your website, you make the statement again, busy but not productive. And I like that because I've experienced that many times where we've been involved with collaboration. There's a lot of busyness, but not necessarily a lot of productivity. <laughs> the importance of collaboration, it's extremely important at the moment. This is what, you know, it's, it's mentioned everywhere. However, can excessive consultation and meetings actually be detrimental and, and produce a stagnant culture? Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. Yes, they can. Government. Oh man, there's so much consultation in, in government, like a million people have to sign everything. And they actually lead to combatant cultures. It's, people fundamentally understand the need to do something and, and are invested in doing it. But what it creates is this real sense of frustration and anger and all of those other kind of natural human emotions that then come out into the workplace. I think that you know, most organizations don't look at the way that they structure their weeks or the way that the kind of people structure their weeks and say, okay, well, is, is, is that bit of work necessary? You know, most meetings are 30 minutes or 60 minutes because that's the yep. default in Outlook or whatever tool that they use. Yep. Um, they don't actually make time to do their job and then they moan that they haven't got time. Yes. Yes. Rather than saying, right, well, I'm going to be really like time is the most precious commodity we have as human beings. It, it, it yeah. really, really is. And so it's up to us to be disciplined about it. So, you know, I was always that kind of lone nut in government where people would invite me to meetings and I would just reply, always reply. Thanks for the invite. This is not a priority for me at, at the minute. Can I suggest you invite X, Y, Z? Or I would delegate. Yes. Oh, it needs you there. Why does it need me? They've already got a member of my team. 
And I would get into all of these, oh, because we expect you to be there. I'm like, okay, just because you expect me doesn't mean I'm going to go. And that's about being clear on your priorities, making sure that presenteeism is less important than productivity. Uh, you know, we love presenteeism. Yep. I work yep. 60 hours away. I've got back-to-back meetings all day. Oh, well, you need to manage your time yep. better. So they can be destructive. Yep. Now, meetings, when run well, can be really, really good. It's just that most people don't run them really, really well. They're just lazy in their approach to them. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a good point and an important point to discuss. Now this is this is a great comment, and this is why your book's so interesting is is because it's 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 written in a fun way, but it's also written from the real world perspective. So in your book, you reference the the book of culture fix. You reference the fact that you were once told by a supervisor to make it a priority to learn about office politics. <laughs> office politics simply condones uh, unprofessional behaviour, don't you think? Oh, totally and utterly. I, oh, I can still remember that as well. You know, one of the reasons that I wrote Culture Fixly, just, just slightly sidetracked, was that I felt yep. that there's lots of books on culture out there that are very theoretical. Uh, if you just be the most authentic version of yourself, everything will be right. It's like, dude, have you ever been bullied in a government where you needed to work, you know, because you couldn't quit? Like, just go and get another job. It's like, it's really sure. not that easy sure. to do. And so that's why I wrote it. And, 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 it's the same with things like this. It's like you have to play the political game. That's exactly what it's said to me. You have to play the political game. I'm like, I'm not going to play the political game. That's just an excuse for really poor behavior, and I'm not going to do mm. that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be a highly emotionally intelligent individual, and I'm going to drive for results, and I'm going to make sure it's absolutely clear the value of why we're doing it. And if you don't do it, then that's fine. But I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna do it in the right way, where I can look at them in the mirror at myself and go, yeah, I didn't try and step all over anyone else's ideas or make a claim that my piece of work was gonna create value that it wasn't going to. This happens all the time in government. It happens it happens sometimes in the private sector. They're you know, a lot wiser to it. Where yeah. you've got people literally standing on each other, claiming their project's going to deliver $50 million worth of benefits, when in reality, it's just one person's pet project that is actually going to lose money. Yes. So, uh, yeah, office politics is simply condoned unprofessional behavior. I completely agree. It's, uh, it's, it's frequently occurring. It's, uh, it's unprofessional. And it's detrimental, I think, to, to the overall productivity of the yeah, team. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's such a great statement. You reference the, that performance appraisals should occur consistently rather than annually. So again, I'm not not trying to focus upon government, but certainly within education, um, we are generally aligned to doing a performance appraisal in a positive way, not not in a, not in a negative way, but in a in a positive way. But we will do that maybe once, maybe twice a year with our faculty. And, and again, we'll tick the box and we'll say, that's great. Thanks so much. We're all agreeing that this is the professional development each one will receive and off they go and, and everybody's happy. We send it to HR and away we go. We, we worry about that in six months' time. You're suggesting that's not necessarily productivity um, or, or, or productive in, in the approach. It's, it's part of the process, but it's not necessarily the be all and end all. Yeah, it's another fast and cheap way to exactly, as you say, tick the box of, yes, we've checked in with our employees. Yes, we've told them a couple of things. We filled in the elongated form or the cumbersome technology system. 
uh, when actually as human beings, what helps us to perform consistent, consistently well, and the research shows us that I kept in the book, uh, is that continual feedback. Uh, we're, we're given Im- almost immediate um kind of insights into the things that we did and, and, the, timeliness. and the timeless because most most appraisals focus on what you've been doing not what you need to do yes. and then we wonder yes. why at the end of the year that people haven't been performing to their optimum level it's like because you waited yes. too long yeah. you know yeah well it is really important because otherwise lee you're always going to be thinking am i doing a good job am i doing and it doesn't matter like you know doesn't matter how old you are how long you've been in the job you want to be told that you're doing well and you want to be given yeah. some pointers if you're not doing the job that was expected you don't want to find out at the end of the year that you've missed out on a bonus or something because mm. you know mm. you didn't get so providing feedback. providing that that feedback but in a feed forward sort of way like a, a future aspirational perspective on on the on the uh support that you're offering your staff yeah and and it's really honestly it's really really easy so i used to do it with my staff on a weekly basis when i was in my jobs and and i would say you know kind of you know what have you got to deliver this week you know here's here's some key priorities for you what's here's one thing that i thought you did really well last week here's one thing for you to think about and it was always one thing Mm. to think about it wasn't here's something that was rubbish what you think yeah if i had a behavioral issue or performance i would deal with it immediately sure i wouldn't send them an email at you know kind of eight o'clock at night in the hope that it would spoil their evening or ruin their Mm. morning um you know it's deal with it straight away otherwise it was always just one thing to think about and and like if it became persistent then i would you know kind of become a bit more formal about it but that just meant that I created this kind of permanent record. And he, I had to fill in that six-month, one-year system. It was so easy for me. And my peers used to say, oh, God, we've got to do appraisals. I'm like, it's easy. If you keep notes all year like I do, it's easy. You know? Yep, yep, yep. So you're providing really what, you, what you're actually doing is demonstrating that you're interested in your staff member and that you have empathy for your staff member, really, in a way, aren't you? And you're doing that on a consistent basis. Well, well, that's absolutely right. You know, kind of, and, and certainly in the early days, I did it without really thinking because what I wanted to do was to be a, you know, a good human being who, you know, my job as a, as a manager was to motivate and inspire someone. I always saw that, you know, as my job, I wanted to create this sense of belonging. I wanted to, people to feel really motivated to achieve. And the only way that you can do that is by obviously getting to know them, understanding what it feels like to walk a mile in their shoes, and then to provide timely feedback so that people can stay at the top of their game and go on to achieve great things if that's what they want to do. And if they don't want to do that, as long as they're being a good human and doing their job, i got no problem. Uh, But if they're not being a good human or not doing their job, then there's a process to follow. I don't want to do it, but there's a process to follow. Mm, mm, that's right. That's right. Now, that, I think, would readily transfer into the classroom and the training environment. So do you have any tips for anyone out there who who would like to enhance their feedback towards students? Uh, yeah. The first, so the first thing you've got to do is be cognizant of the different ways that people like to receive information. Now, this isn't something we teach at school, but I wish we would teach it at school, uh, which kind of goes back to Jung's theory of personality in the 20s and 30s, the work that he did, which you now see in business tools like Myers-Briggs and DISC mm-hmm. and all of these other things. 
you know, and, and consistently proved, although I'm sure someone will get in touch. So I heard your podcast with Lee. You're wrong. <laughs> you know, totally. If not this podcast, then, you know, it'll never. I'm happen. sure. I'm sure. It is, we all process information in, in, in slightly different ways. So, you know, I see it with my own kids in, in Melbourne yes. right now. We have them at home. Not that I'm homeschooling, but I'm making sure they've got a good routine. So I can kind of talk candidly to my son. He's a very social kid. You know, he's, a, he's an extrovert and he thinks on his feet, highly creative. So I can be like, you know, dude, did you get that? Do you understand? You have to be really high energy with, with him. Whereas my daughter is quite introverted and, and you know, certainly more of a thinker. I'm like, so sweetheart, are you set up for today? You know, what are your top three things that you want to get done? What have you got at 11? What have you got at one? Whereas, whereas with my son, I'm like, dude, you got PE today? Oh, man. God, I know how you feel about PE. <laughs> So it's really being cognizant of the different ways that, that, that students and adults process information in different ways and what's good for Colin is not good for Lee. And I think, you know, yep. certainly it, my wife and I were having this discussion not long ago, actually, about uh, teachers and, and the fact that the certainly for me, the teachers that had the biggest impact on my life were the ones that found a way to speak to me. I wasn't, honestly, wasn't the most engaged kid in the classroom. And yet the subjects that I did well on were the teachers where they really engaged me and they understood how I processed information. Now, I get that that can be hard, um, but that's where, uh, from a classroom perspective, and uh, and obviously, sorry, the other thing thirdly as well is when you've got a classroom full of multiple personalities, you have to do all four of the kind of personality yeah. things. Yeah. You yeah. have to be slow paced, calm, detail, facts, figures. You have to be warm, empathetic, friendly. You have to be action oriented and kind of you know yeah. encourage people to yeah. take a bit of risk. And you have to be energetic, creative as well. And that's for. <laughs> me when I look at what teachers have to do and what they get paid I'm like they're not paid enough to do all four of those things for a whole day every week of the year you know it's like oh but they get eight weeks holiday I'm like it's not enough it's they're knackered they're exhausted yeah yeah oh you're right and I think that uh, you spoke about it earlier but the demonstrating it or modeling the consistency of behavior that's expected in the classroom is is, is pretty important as well um, from the faculty perspective you know arriving prior to the classroom commencing and things like that uh, to ensure that you're just you're just modeling the expected behavior for the for the cohort to follow well that's absolutely right the other thing there as well it's about teaching just like you know for, for, for certainly for people like me people like you if a consultant you know as a public speaker I, I have to make sure that my messages and my behaviors my mindset my thought processes are continually relevant uh, for the day that we live in right now so I have to be across the social issues I have to be across the news I have to be across technology I have to be across why it matters that Microsoft want to buy TikTok all of these kind of things because we're working with people who have those questions in their heads and even though that might be, not be what I'm teaching I, I still have to be aware of those kind of social issues you know Black Lives Matter is, is a great example of something where I for me and I like to think that you know I I my, my thought process are exactly where they need to be. I'm, you know, accepting of all yep. people of all races. But I, I, I look, I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, but do you? 
do you really understand? And I had to go and you know, I went and read some stuff and did a bunch of unlearning and relearning. I read, you know, kind of how to be an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi. And, and it really forced me to change my outlook on everything. And that comes back to what you said about the role modeling is you've got to yeah. be able to have these constructive conversations with individuals to make sure that you're helping them to be the best that they can be. Yes. Too. Yes, that's right. And, and constantly remaining educated. You're right. Um, as you said earlier, dealing with poor performance quickly within the classroom, exactly the same as in the workplace, and timely and specific feedback, as you referenced earlier. Um, I would add that into the mix in the classroom Absolutely. settings. So it is it is a complex environment in which to work. You're right. It seems, it seems logical to me to suggest that workplace culture is fundamentally underpinned by workplace induction programs. And some induction programs are done really well and some have a lot to be desired. So I read with interest this uh, rotation induction process with regards to, I think it's the Zappos Family New Hire Program, you, you title it. Do you want to just explain to our listeners how that process works? Uh, yeah, and I can I can give a very real example of that because it's something that I used to do myself before I even became aware of the Zappos uh, induction program. Is when you, you know, and 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 Tony Shea, if if you're not familiar with Zappos, Zappos are an online shoe retailer. They're now part of the Amazon family. But when Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, agreed to sell the business or to become part of the Zappos family. He insisted on retaining the Zappos culture. Now, the first time Amazon bid for the company, uh, he he said, listen, I'll do it. The culture has to say the same. And Amazon said, Jeff Bezos said no. So he refused to sell the business. Um, he sold it uh, for three times more uh, later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and got the agreement um, because one of the things that they do really well and what Tony says is is they hire slow but fire fast. Mm-hmm. He said, we want to make sure that when we hire people, we spend the right amount of time emphasizing our values, our vision, what we expect of our people as human beings. Then we're going to make sure that they fully understand what it means to be a Zappos employee. And so what that means is that they kind of take them through a, a process, an onboarding process where you're given that, that real insight into actually how things operate and, and, and how things work. And then you have to spend time on the phones because Zappos fundamentally are a kind of a telebusiness. They're, they're on the phone selling shoes. People phone up, they order shoes. And so even if you're the CFO, you have to yep. spend two weeks on the phones. And so I went and did, I did a, a culture program at Zappos in Las Vegas last year. So I spent a week with them, which was awesome. Mm. And I spent time on the phones because mm, they said, if you want to be part of this culture program, you've got to do what we do. And like for me, I, I think, used to work in telesales and I was like, well, this is taking me yeah. back. I think you would have sold a few shoes in that week. <laughs> 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 oh yeah, mate. Yeah, I provide the best <laughs> service. Like, oh man, I got this English guy. I didn't even know they had those here. Um, and, and and yeah, it's you know something that I used to do as a manager before I knew all of this is for my own leadership teams. Is I used to rotate them. So I used to go in. I would spend you know kind of six eight weeks getting to know everybody. I would do a culture redefinition to make sure that everyone was in kind of in line with you know what, this is what vibrant culture means. This is where we want to go. And then I used to say to my to my management teams, listen, we all do our best work on the edge of uncomfortable. Plus, we're going to have no empathy for each other if we don't know what each other do. So I'm going to rotate you guys, and you'll spend a month working in each other's jobs 
so you get that real understanding. And of course, what it does is it improves collaboration, it improves empathy, it improves emotional intelligence, courageous conversations go up, we improve connection and belonging and all of those other kind of things. And all of the great tech cultures and other great cultures around the world they do this they have a well-defined i guess education and familiarization program so that people at the end of that first 30 days and then 60 days and 90 days understand what it means to be an employee of whatever the establishment is and can bring their best self to work every day yeah fantastic i think that's something uh, to keep in mind for for many adult education institutions is the importance of of an authentic and well-programmed proactive induction program which we don't see a lot of in our sector so no and but again it's another it's another little shortcut what we do is we produce a pack of information we send it out and we hope that they read it and if they don't read it then kind of you know they're they're expecting they're expecting something on day one, and I think when you don't bring people into the organisation in a way that generates that good feeling, immediately you you've kind of gone backwards culturally. I had I had one job uh, Lee where I was interviewed three times for the job. Okay, so I'm, I'm like for me, you know given the, the work that I've done on culture myself, I'm like, oh, this is this is awesome. You know, this culture is going to be really good. And I and I joined the organisation. And I was left to my own devices for the first two weeks. I'm like, what the hell? Mm. What, what was the point of doing three interviews if you're going to yeah. completely drop the ball? You know, read the internet is a pack of it. Read that folder full of stuff. It's just like, yep. no, that's not the way induction works. No, no, that's a good point. Colin, I know I've referenced Culture Fix quite a lot, but there's so much more to you and your business. Um, you've also got the book, the project book, and, and run a number of educational programs and the like. Would you like to share just a little bit about your business and your contact details so people can follow up with you if they if they wish to? Sure, thank you. Yeah, um, and so I help organisations around the world uh, to create the cultures they need to be successful. You know, I really focused on leaders leaving a cultural legacy. I guess you know, for me, I wanted to. I want to give the information away. I don't want to be a consultant that you have to keep bringing backwards and backwards and forwards. Um, and so my programs focus on giving people the information they need to be continually successful. Uh, so you can find out more at colindellis.com. Uh, you can buy the you can buy Culture Fix or the Project Book. I've got a new book coming out in October called Culture Hacks, uh, which is twenty six <laughs> ideas to create great workplace culture. Um, uh, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. A lot, a lot of people do that; they like to follow some of the stuff. Or else we've got a we've got a community called Culture Fix Community Lee, and on there are three online programs that people can undertake. So we have a number of corporate clients who, because they're low cost, people love it when it's low cost. Uh, three <laughs> online programs plus the opportunity to kind of work with people around the world on, on creating great workplace culture. Yeah, fantastic, and you just and you're doing just that. Um, what I can say is uh, I can strongly recommend to our audience uh, the importance of grabbing a copy of Culture Fix and having a read. It's it's uh, There's some really valuable insights in there, and it's written, as I said, in, in a real-world context, so it's certainly worth reading. Colin, thanks so much for your time today. It's been really rewarding both for myself and I'm sure for the listeners. My pleasure, Lee. Thanks so much for having me on. Learn more about Transformation Consultancy by visiting www.transformationconsultancy.com.au.